Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rocking good time talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. My name is Joseph Wade. I'll be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cutmore. Libby, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Joe. It's been a hell of a time here in 2021, and I'm ready to leave it behind. Yes, indeed, for the vast unknown of 2022, which I feel like is going to be the remixed version. I feel like 2022 is going to be the pentatonics version of 2021. Don't you say that. <laughs> Don't you fucking say that. <laughs> Don't put that evil on me, Libby. <laughs> I swear, we made it out of this year alive. I want to say 2022 will be better. It won't. <laughs> no. But no, that's that's not why we're here. We need to look to the new year with positivity and good feelings towards all. Yes, good vibes uh, of, of all stripes, including uh, positive mood slime, as it turns out, in this yes. week's episode. Because this week... We're talking about a film that is absolutely 100% a New Year's Eve film, and that's Ghostbusters 2. Yes, from 1989, heading into the 90s with Ghostbusters 2, which... From that fabled summer of 1989 that was so overstuffed with like hit movies and franchise sequels that Weird Al's UHF could find no purchase. <laughs> we return once again like moths to the flame. It's the summer of 89. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Sorry. I apologize to everybody. Get out of here, Brian Adams. <laughs> oh, man. But before we talk about Ghostbusters 2, we got to wrap up some old business from our last episode where we talked about the Star Wars holiday special, which I feel like was a pretty big hit with our listeners. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, we've tried so hard to bring this to you over the years, and that is a true statement. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, but the indeed. poll... We asked you, there are only four songs in the Star Wars Holiday Special, so it was an easy poll to do. None of these are good songs, so which is the least terrible song in the Star Wars Holiday Special? And with a, a strong 53% of the vote, it was B. Arthur's Good Night But Not Goodbye. You guys loved that song, it, which <laughs> kind of surprised me. I mean, I like it, but it's not my favorite. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what did you vote for? I voted for Light the Sky on Fire. Come on. I I think I did, too. Because um, I guess it's the most that sounds like a real song. It's the only one that's a real song. I mean, this moment is kind of a real song, but it's the most the most real of the four, I guess. Yes. But uh, second place, yeah, with 19.5% was Jefferson Starship's Light the Sky on Fire, which is a, a good, dumb, fun piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> Best dumb way to 70s it. rock. Uh, third place with 16.5% was Carrie Fisher singing A Day to Celebrate, the Life Day song that is sung to the tune of the Star Wars theme. Oh, boy. I mean, we all miss Carrie Fisher, but eh, that's third place is still too high for that one. Come on, you guys. And, and with 11%, last place was Dionne Carroll's This Minute Now. I feel like she suffered because of the fans. Maybe. I feel like if she hadn't been singing that in a song where a thousand-year-old glue stick Wookiee <laughs> masturbates, then that song would have gotten higher. I still contend, like, if this was a James Bond song, we would be asking, you know, the poll, 
you know, which of these is the best like second tier Bond song, and this would probably win. I yeah, because it's it's a perfectly fine song in its own right. It's just you slap it on the Star Wars thing, and it's like, all right, but who cares? It's icky. It's, it's just icky. Super or icky. itchy, as, it's... as it were. Ow, that hurts. <laughs> I'm lumpy. <laughs> We also ran a second sort of silly poll. Who sang a better version of the Star Wars theme? And again, was that Carrie Fisher uh, with A Day to Celebrate or Bill Murray as Nick the Lounge Singer on Saturday Night Live? And with 59% of the vote, Bill Murray won that poll. Yeah, come on. But we had a lot of fun with that episode. That was it was a it was good time, and hopefully we never have to talk about it ever again. Never, I don't think I can do it. I've done two podcasts about it at this point in my life. <laughs> I don't need to do a third. No. So invite us on your Star Wars podcast to talk about the Star Wars holiday special, won't you? Yes, you. please. We have opinions. <laughs> we have thoughts. <laughs> But uh, so tonight's episode, Ghostbusters 2, actually marks uh, Bill Murray's second appearance on the podcast and his second holiday appearance. Yeah, I mean, third appearance if you count the fact that we used his song in the Star Wars episode. But yeah, last year, about this time, we were talking about Scrooge, specifically because we fumbled the ball on a Star Wars holiday special episode. Yes, and because its message of change and redemption spoke to us as we headed out of 2020 into 21. So we are once again trying to bring those good Bill Murray vibes. Maybe we'll just start doing a Bill Murray New Year. That yeah. will be our tradition here on the LST party. You know what? Why not? It, it, it's <laughs> as good an excuse as any. And at this point, I'm I'm willing to try anything to get these years to turn themselves around. Yes. But Ghostbusters 2 is one of those movies that I feel like if you're of a certain age and that age is, you know, my and Libby's age, you know, mid thirties, you probably have pretty strong opinions about this film either because you love the original Ghostbusters and you think the sequel sucks hard. Or if you just watched way too much comedy central as a kid and this movie was on all the time, <laughs> one of those two reasons you've probably, you've probably seen Ghostbusters too. And you probably care either a lot about it or not at all about it. Uh, but li- li- first things first, Libby, uh, what's your history with Ghostbusters too? It's actually neither of those things that you cited. I did not see Ghostbusters 2 probably until my 20s. I don't know why. I just know that I saw it when I was with Ian. You know, I I think he had like the box set. And I was like, oh, I've never seen Ghostbusters 2. I've only seen the first one a couple times. Uh, So we watched it and I kind of like it. I don't, I know a lot of people really hate it and think it's kind of a cheap copy of the, uh, the original, but I think it's a fine summer popcorn fare. Joe, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I was one of those kids who watched way too much Comedy Central, so I saw this one, I think I saw this one maybe ten times before I ever actually saw the original. Interesting. But, like, I was a kid who really loved the Ghostbusters cartoon growing up. Which so, I have never seen. Okay, see, this this movie is more of a response to the cartoon than anything else, because, like, mm-hmm. the original movie is is its own thing, and it's fine. But then, you know, you build a franchise around it and you have cartoon show that sells toys to kids and then you make another movie. Well, you have to sell that movie to kids. So there's a lot yeah. of like weird cartoony stuff in this. And I think that's what I responded to, because like as, as bad as I can kind of recognize that it is like I actually do kind of have some affection for this one. 
Yes, and the soundtrack is wild. The soundtrack is nuts, and I kind of love it. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very strange mix that I I don't quite understand, but sort of appreciate. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely like of a certain era of pop music, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, well, actually, let's talk about it right now, because before we can talk about Ghostbusters 2, we have to talk about billboarding school. Yes. Back from the grave. We, I know we had some existential threats to billboarding school. Yes, because our friends at Billboard.com decided in their infinite wisdom to put the entire site behind a paywall. If you want to subscribe to Billboard's website for $11 a month, you can get access to all of the stats from albums that came out 32 years ago. <laughs> or you can do what I did and go to archive.org's Wayback Machine and look at the oh, website yeah. from two or three months ago before the paywall existed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody at Billboard I said that. <laughs> Anywho, so let's talk, let's talk about stats for Ghostbusters 2. The soundtrack debuted on the Billboard charts uh, July 1st, 1989 at number 74. The number one album that week was Fine Young Cannibals, The Raw and The Cooked. Which is not a great album. I have it. Uh, The singles, good thing, and obviously She Drives Me Crazy are wonderful. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rest of it, not that great. No. I mean, that's the reason they were kind of a one-hit wonder. Yeah. Uh, But the top soundtrack that week at number three was the soundtrack to Beaches. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> like the summer was just getting started at this point. So all the big hits were yet to come. But interesting to note, number two on the album charts was Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel. Yes. Which is definitely going to play a part a little bit later. Now, the album lasted 19 weeks on the charts and it peaked at number 14. So this was relatively popular. It was a big deal. It was a pretty big deal. It fell off the charts in November. Uh, the number one album that week that it fell off was Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814. Yes, which is also vital. And the Ghostbusters to soundtrack may have played a part in that. Very much so, yeah. Uh, but the top soundtrack that week at number 51 and dropping fast was Prince's Batman soundtrack. Ooh. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cruel, by the way, was still hanging around the top 30. Okay. This was a big year for Bobby Brown. Yes, it was. But the back half, the entire back half of 1989 was a really weird time for soundtracks, as I found out. The only other soundtracks on the charts at this point were Prince's Batman album, Danny Elfman's Batman album, the Beaches soundtrack, and the Broadway cast album of Phantom of the Opera. Okay, that is an extremely 1989 thing. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Phantom of the Opera was the twilight of the late 80s. And arguably 90s and 2000s as well. Many generations have seen and were captivated by Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Danny Elfman, of course, uh, with his Batman soundtrack, also appears here on the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack. Yeah, we'll be talking about him in a little bit later. Yes. Uh, just to get into the singles a little bit, Bobby Brown's On Our Own from Ghostbusters 2 was one of two radio singles from this film. Hit number two on the Billboard Hot 100. It sat at number two for three weeks in August of 89. The songs that kept it from number one were Princess Bat Dance, the weirdest <laughs> song ever written, and Richard Marx's Right Here Waiting, the saddest ooh, ooh, song ooh, ever ooh. written. <laughs> and then sliding in at number three was just this pure, this pure strain, like new Jack Swing goodness of, of Bobby Brown's On Our Own. <laughs> I know. And they just, they couldn't let us have number one. I can't argue Prince, but Bat Dance is not one of my favorites. 
No, and and right here waiting really is like that's a that's a trigger song for me. I cannot hear that and not not just ball my eyes. Out. <laughs> oh, it's um, it's the male version of "Wind Beneath My Wings." Yeah, it's just a cry fest. It really is. Blah. But on our own did, however, hit number one on the U.S. R&B charts, the Canadian dance charts, and the New Zealand recorded music chart, which I did not know was a thing. <laughs> okay. So yeah, big hit uh, around the world. Yes, everybody loves it. Now let's talk about Ghostbusters 2 and the album that accompanies it. Uh, Joe, do you want to give us a brief uh, synopsis of Ghostbusters 2? Heck yeah, sure. So basically, uh, the film picks up five years later from the original in 1989, and it shows us, you know, where the Ghostbusters have kind of dispersed to in those years since. Uh, Peter Venkman is a crappy daytime TV talk show host. Uh, Ray has opened a an occult bookstore. Egon is still doing weird science experiments. And Winston, I assume, is just like a family man hanging out doing his thing. We don't know. But the plot of the film is that a painting has shown up in the New York Museum of Art of Vigo the Carpathian, who is a genocidal madman from, I think, the, the 15th century, something like that, long time mm-hmm. ago. He basically gets his Renfield in Peter McNichol as this character named Janos, who is like the museum director, who's trying to get Sigourney Weaver to hand over her baby so that Vigo can inhabit the baby and then take over the world. And guess what? The Ghostbusters have to stop him. Also, Pretty easy plot to follow. Pretty easy plot. But also, uh, most of the film is, is wrapped around an entire story about a river of slime underneath the city. Yes, that feeds on negative human emotions. Yes. Who boy, that's kind of a lot for uh, a comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, the first song that we hear is, you know, the, the Ray Parker Jr. original Ghostbusters theme. But not where you'd expect, because as, as the film opens, it's five years later, Ray and Winston are going to perform at a child's birthday party. Yes. Which I find fascinating. Like, imagine if you had a job and your job was so awesome that Ray Parker Jr. wrote an absolute banger about you. <laughs> yeah. Like, how cool would that be? Like, Libby works at Hartwick. She takes her lunch break <laughs> and she looks at Red. Libby Cudmore. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. But they they exist in a world where they have their own theme song. You know, maybe, which really, I don't care what you're doing, is the dream. You know, maybe that's why they got bankrupted because they had to pay so much money to Ray Parker Jr. I, or wait, no, because I re- remember in the real world, Ray Parker Jr. got sued by Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> So maybe oh, the go- maybe in the real world the Ghostbusters went bankrupt because they had to pay Huey Lewis a shitload of money. Oh, thanks, Huey Lewis. You dick! You ruin everything. <laughs> but they could have gotten him for this soundtrack. They could have, but they didn't. No, they whiffed twice. Wait, mm-hmm. what, what, do you, what do you want me to say? But I love this this opening, especially because like this one kid comes up to Ray and says, "Like, you know, my dad says you guys are full of crap." Jason, well, some gosh. people have trouble believing in the paranormal. No, he just says you guys are full of crap, and that's why you went out of business. 
And that's Jason Reitman, the son of director Ivan Reitman. Yes, who's gone on to ruin Ghostbusters all his own. <laughs> A whole family of Ghostbusters ruiners. It's great. <laughs> yes, we also we check in on our friend Dana who now has a baby, is divorced, um, and shops at D'Agostino's, which is an extremely New York thing to do. It should be noted that she lives at East 77th. That's not where she originally lived in the first film, is it? I don't know. Uh, I just think it's neat when you can point out like areas of the city. That would be about 10 blocks from where my grandmother used to live. Oh, nice. So she is an East Sider now. Aha. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so her her baby goes on a wild ride in his little carriage because she rolls it over some slime that has gotten up onto the street. You know that this is a movie because when she rolls through the slime, she's not also rolling through cigarette butts and old leaves and hot dog wrappers. And also because when she rolls over it, she neither notices nor cares. Yes. Well, that's a true New Yorker just isn't going to care. Right. So uh, there's no dog poop. There's no runners trying to get past her and yelling at her on the sidewalk. Yeah. Um, none of that. So you're like, hmm, this must be a film. <laughs> the I runners have... stay contained to the park. I have to suspend my disbelief. Yes. That she would walk through goo and nothing else on a street in New York City. I, w- I always hate when I see people wear flip flops in New York. Like, oh, do you have God. any idea what the streets look like? Oh, Gross. God, I can't imagine gross no way no way but yeah after winston and ray go to this kid's birthday party then the next time we see is peter on his tv show world of the psychic where yes we get not one but two predictions of the apocalypse and guess what one of them turns out to be correct and one of them uh the woman says that the world will end on february 14th 2016 we wish was correct yeah more on that later but um what you have to understand about public access television in New York City specifically is that it is regular public access madness dialed up to 11. It is the most majestic weirdness that you have ever imagined. And that's why uh, Kroll shows Too Much Tuna uh, places George St. Geegland and Gil Faison on, I think, Manhattan One. Because, of course, they would have a prank show where they give people giant tuna sandwiches. And that, <laughs> if you saw too much tuna just on, you would just assume, like, yeah, no, of course. Of course that's a show on public access in New York. No reason to think that it's anything but. Uh, I used to watch a channel called Manhattan Neighborhood Network. Yeah. Uh, when I would stay at my grandmother's on West 72nd. And Manhattan Neighborhood Network only ran at the weirdest hours, like 2 o'clock in the morning. And there would be videos for things like the interplanetary rapper, who was a guy in a Party City alien costume rapping. I feel like you've mentioned this guy before. I have. Yeah. Um, He was there. Um. He's probably the most prominent. You can win a date with the interplanetary rapper. I think. Oh, you know what? I think I probably talked about him on UHF. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Um, there was a skit about how to break into somebody's house. Uh, oh. There was all sorts of wonderful weirdness 
always the traffic cam from Times Square would play if there was no show on. So God bless you, New York Public Access, and God bless you, Peter Venkman. Yeah, for for bringing the truth to the people, even if the yes. people maybe don't want to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the the other uh, prediction for the end of the world is New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty nine. Which, hey, guess what? In the world of the movie, is about a, a week away. Yes. Uh, but it's it's really you know we get thirty good minutes before the first like ghost busting happens in the movie. Yes, and we were also introduced to Janos, who is very creepy and creeps on Dana trying to go out with her. And as my husband put it, he is the reason my husband is slightly afraid of people with curly hair. <laughs> Tim and Gene Wilder in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, That terrorized him as a child. Um, but yeah, Janos uh, <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a strange dude, and I, I don't know if... I almost feel weird laughing at him because it's such like a, a heightened like Eastern European caricature. But mm-hmm. Peter McNichol just plays him so well. He just yes. he brings such a weird energy to that character. That I just love him. He kind of reminded me of uh, Jonathan Lithgow in uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, yeah. That I could same see that. like Eastern European mad scientist vibe. If Dr. Venkman then is not here. Yeah, we know that, Johnny. So why are you came? Well, we got a report. There was a major creep in the area. We checked our list, and you were right on the top. Johnny, where in the hell are you from, anyway? The Upper West Side. Yes, I'm sure he was at my grandmother's Passover Seder in 1994. That's the kind of person who would have been there. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, I could say, yeah, probably the Upper West Side is accurate. Maybe. <laughs> I, you would know better I than me. I imagine he lived at West 74th. The long and short of, of the, the opening act of the film is that the Ghostbusters go looking for this pink slime underground. Or no, they go looking for some energy, you know, the source of the energy that sucked the baby out into the street. They wind up digging a hole straight in the middle of the street and find underneath New York City this giant river of slime going down an old uh, subway tunnel. Mm-hmm. And this immediately catches the attention of the New York, New York Police Department. They get arrested and they're brought in for to trial because... They um, accidentally hit an electrical pole. I got power to the entire city. Yes, and apparently they are not allowed to do actual ghost busting, as we find out from Judge Harris Eulen. Yes, because a- after the events of the original film, uh, even though they saved the day and the world, they were basically banned from ghost busting forever. Because they caused so much property damage, which I think is kind of an important detail. Because, especially when you watch, like, big stupid blockbusters like any marvel movie i mean the damage is untold the human cost is ridiculous and it's never acknowledged like as bad as independence day resurgence was like at least they acknowledge like cities were destroyed and needed to be rebuilt yeah so i like that (laughs) cost factor built in because yeah it's cool the ghostbusters saved the day but you really kind of wrecked the joint and then, and then Peter makes makes so much light of it in one little line where he says, like, you know, we did a job for the city a few years back, and then the and then the mayor stiffed us on the bill. Yeah, which is a very light way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so the you know the Ghostbusters, uh, though the judge is yelling at the Ghostbusters, and he's so forceful and so angry that like the mood slime on the evidence table just explodes. Two ghosts pop out. It's the Scaleri brothers. Yes. Before we go any further, we should also note that our friend Tully is back. 
He is their lawyer. Yes, of course. Yes, and his defense is, uh, I turned into a dog once and they saved me. (laughs) This marks our friend Rick Moranis' third appearance on the podcast. Yes, absolutely. After we mentioned him on the the Mel Brooks episode on Spaceballs and then also with uh, Streets of Fire. Yes. So this is a Rick Moranis fan cast. Absolutely. So then, yeah, the the first official ghost busting in the film is uh, our guys fight the Scolari brothers in this uh, courtroom. Yes. uh, Apparently, the judge sends them to the electric chair and they are back for revenge. Uh, Now, the death penalty in New York was abolished in 1965, which means this judge has been on the bench since before then. So it's really important to vote for your judges. That's just a little PSA from us here at the OST party. Now see, either that or he sentenced them them to the electric chair after the fact, in which case, yes, they have every right to come back and haunt him because that was illegal. Yes. Which also seems fair. That seems like a very Dan Aykroyd detail to include, you know? Mm-hmm. Because he's really into, like, fine-grained details of this stuff like this. Yes. Yeah, but the Ghostbusters are back, and we get our first Ghostbusting montage set to a new version of the Ghostbusters theme, this time performed by Run DMC. Yes, let's go to a clip. That's all I can say is wow. I don't know how I feel about this one, to be honest. I like it. It's a really wonderfully updated version. Um, I think by the third verse, it's worn out as welcome, though. Yeah, it's a little too long for what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's got such a good energy and such a fun little um, like verse to it that I kind of dig it. Yeah, and... One of the things, and we'll talk about this, especially when we get to Bobby Brown, this soundtrack was so influential on getting black music to particularly white suburban male audiences. Yes. Um, And this song, and Run DMC especially, was really credited with that. Um, They were sort of that one of the big first crossover artists to appeal to that you know, that demographic. And this soundtrack has so many wonderful black artists on it, which is kind of fascinating considering there are two black people in the movie and one of them is a cameo from Bobby Brown. (laughs) Yeah. It's the other is Winston and he has about 11 lines. I love that. He just kind of randomly shows up in the courtroom scene. Like, yeah. he, he hasn't been working for these, I mean, because they haven't been working together. But even when they're put on trial, he shows up for moral support. That's a good friend right there. Yeah. Um, do you know the band Godspeed, You Black Emperor? I'm I'm aware of them. Uh, my friend Matthew always referred to them as Godspeed, You Black Ghostbuster. <laughs> and I feel like that could be a secondary title for this soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Like the, the Winston Zeddemore uh, tribute album. Yes. God. God. <laughs> the, uh, the other thing I'll say is this. There were two music videos made for this film. Uh, Bobby Brown got the first one. Run DMC got the second one. And the this video is mostly just kind of 
a video of a Run DMC concert, and I gotta say, it looks like a really fun time. Like I probably would have enjoyed a Run DMC concert. It does. They come out in the Ghostbusters uniforms, and uh, Sigourney Weaver like leads them in. Yeah, it's, it's in a, the video. It's, it's a fun vibe, and it is. And then it occurred to me, like, this is not that far off from where, like, hip-hop videos would be, like, in the early 90s. Like, it's not that different from, like, a, a um, an MC Hammer video. Yes. And, again, that was starting to make that jump into the mainstream as music videos continued to increase their power with the reach of MTV. Absolutely. Um, and by mainstream, of course, we mean, you know, white kids in Kansas. Mm-hmm. But I um... or, or North Carolina, as it were. Uh, yes. My, I, like I like I've mentioned on the show before. My the first album I bought with my own money was MC Hammer's "Too Legit to Quit." Mm-hmm. I was six. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, of the sort of remixes, as it were, of the Ghostbusters theme song, this one stands mountains above the rest. Oh, yes. Because Pentatonix, no. my arch nemesis, covered it for the 2016 version. And I know the 2016 version gets a lot of hate because it's bad. Um, it, we really should be focusing our anger on Pentatonix. Yeah. I mean, they have a lot to answer for already. They are... The coronavirus of music. Oh, no. Yeah. They just spread everywhere and leave destruction in their wake. Who likes pentatonics? I don't know one person in a healthy relationship that likes pentatonics. Um, I can't say anything legally. The only thing that I will say in that version's defense, and this is a really minor defense, believe me, is you can't really complain about, oh, they, they mess with the Ghostbusters theme. They've been messing with the Ghostbusters theme since the very beginning. Yeah, I think there's been so many versions and so many people have tried to do it. It's, you know, getting mad over one remix is kind of silly. Well, I'm still going to be mad. Well, that uh, plenty okay. of silly things. Get, getting <laughs> mad over two remixes is kind of silly. One you are I, allowed to be mad about. Uh, I, doesn't Walk the Moon do one too? <laughs> Probably. Who knows? I didn't listen to that one because I really like that song, Shut Up and Dance. And I'm like, you're not ruining this for me. Yeah. You guys are a one hit wonder and you're going to stay that way. <laughs> Yes, we're never going to speak of this again. But um, I noticed that uh, Egon, who's my favorite Ghostbuster, wears Doc Martens. Oh, of course he does. Yeah. Who's your favorite Ghostbuster? I was always a Ray guy. I don't know. That tracks. He's my husband's favorite Ghostbuster. He's the true believer. You know, Egon's like the science guy, but Ray, like, he actually believes in this stuff. And I kind of respect that. Yeah. Egon blinded me with science. (laughs) Very good. I want to point out that... um, Ray's bookstore, Ray's Occult, yeah. is located at 33 St. Mark's place in uh, in the village. And it is about two down from Search and Destroy. It is uh, also a few stores down from the Sockman, which is an iconic New York location where I got all my crazy tights when I was a teenager. And also at 33 St. Mark's Place, years later, uh, now gone, sadly, like so many things, was Mark Burger, which had the best burgers. And at Mark Burger, friend of the show, Ian Smith, asked me the greatest question that a man can ever ask a woman, which was, will you give the speech from Independence Day at my wedding? 
<laughs> so it was at the site of Ray's occult books. It is now, I believe, a tattoo parlor, as is everything on St. Mark's. That makes a weird amount of sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that street used to be so cool and so full of punks. Kim's video was there. Search and, Des- Search and Destroy is still there. Uh, St. Mark's Comics, Religious Sex, which was a goth clothing store. It was across the street from Trash and Vaudeville, which was a punk clothing store, where I guarantee you Janine has shopped at Trash and Vaudeville. <laughs> um, but the, all that, all of that is gone now. The Janine in this film, probably, definitely. Yeah, that that leopard coat she wears absolutely came from Trash and Vaudeville, I guarantee it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So moving we on. also see our old yeah. friend Slimer during this montage. Of course. For be- the kids. For the Yeah, for the kids, exactly. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Tell them, Egon. Oh, you mean the Ghostbusters hot beverage thermal mug and free balloons for the kids? <laughs> I want a thermal mug. Me too. Now, it should also be noted that at this point, the the business is back open and they have a conspicuous patch on their sleeves and the sign out front. And it's the Ghostbusters 2 logo with the ghost who's giving the peace sign to symbolize the number two. And that's weird, isn't it? It's a little weird. And uh, I think our listener, Corey Funk, pointed that out as well. He did. And... <laughs> I, I supplied him with an answer, and I I hope he didn't think I was being serious. <laughs> but I, it, it it makes sense to me, and like the only reason I can think of why they would do that is Tully probably insisted they call the business Ghostbusters Two for tax purposes. Well, you'll notice that the original logo has feet. Yes, the original Ghostbusters Two logo. He steps through the uh, the sign. That design was lost somewhere. So later promotional materials, they had to redo it. They forgot to draw his second back foot. Ooh. So he just has one foot stepping out. That was actually something that a friend of the show and husband of mine, Ian Austin, pointed out. Oh. And also, of course, you know, from the Ghostbusters cartoon show, the, the theme song opens with that ghost just out walking around the streets. So I guess they had to turn that into a character and put him on the logo huh why not okay interesting (sighs) um but as they're testing the slime they see that it reacts to anger they yell at it in a test tube and it bubbles up every time ray yells at it it bubbles up a little bit more this scene changed a young mark zuckerberg's life he thought if I can take that substance and digitize it, <laughs> I can take over the world. And thus, right there, Facebook was born. Welcome to the metaverse, everybody. <laughs> Where you will get yelled at on the internet. Because. Yes. Just because. Because. Because we react to anger. Yes. And it, it, every time somebody gets, gets yelled at on the internet, the internet grows stronger. Exactly. Uh, it's also implied that Egon is fucking the slime. <sighs> I hate this joke so much. <laughs> no, because in the original Ghostbusters, uh, I, there was a scene deleted where a ghost blows Ray. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> this joke stays. The kid stays in the picture. <laughs> Egon fucks the slime. It makes sense. I mean, sure, why not? I mean, and then and it, have you seen the new Ghostbusters, by the way? I have not. Well, the new Ghostbusters it opens by basically establishing that Egon was already a deadbeat dad by the time the Ghostbusters started anyway. No, that's so, fun. Sure, that's why fun not? Have him fuck some slime. Why not? 
<laughs> Nothing is sacred and everything is a joke. Eh, it's just it's just a flashlight. It's just a homemade flashlight. No harm, no foul. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so they, they yell at it and it bubbles up. But what happens when they do nice things to it? Not like sleeping with it, but just, you know, saying supportive things to it and playing it nice music. So they play Jackie Wilson's Higher and Higher and the toaster dances. Who wouldn't? That song rocks. Yeah, it, it works for dance. me. The toaster dances like a white person. It, it dances just like me. <laughs> <laughs> I jump back and forth. And I shoot toast out my mouth. <laughs> well, the very next, so not the very next scene, but we're just going to move on. Uh, the next thing that happened, the next big thing that happens in the film, Dana's bathtub tries to eat Dana and Oscar. Like the pink slime starts to come through the, the spigot of the bathtub and like a pink, like, slime muppet tries to eat them it's yes it's an awful effect but there it is and this is where we get our next song but if you aren't paying attention you're gonna miss it because it's four bars of oingo boingo's flesh and blood welcome back to the podcast guys let's go to a clip I don't know about you. I like this one a lot. This one isn't my favorite. We hear the line flesh and blood in Weird Science. Oh, okay. It's flesh and blood. I do not know. It's got Danny Elfman's soaring falsetto and it's got the horn section, but it's a little muted. And this one appeared on their seventh album, uh, Dark at the End of the Tunnel, with a slightly different mix. Uh, which That one came out in 1990, but by 1994, when their last album came out they were done and you can i feel like you can kind of hear it here yeah it's very different from the ongo boingo we've had on the show before that's for sure yeah and and in only a few years and you kind of wonder if they were looking for that weird science dead man's party um yeah libby uh teen wolf 2 was only two years ago yes um who do you want to be exactly and so they were probably looking for that really frantic, big, wild Oingo Boingo. And they got instead this very sort of not somber because it's still energetic, but it is not Dead Man's Party. Not by a long shot. And I mean, as much as I did enjoy this song, I hate to say it. This isn't even the best Oingo Boingo song on the soundtrack. That's kind of true. I'm. Um, at this point, we're really starting to see Danny Elfman move away into composing. He's got the Batman soundtrack on the charts right. while this album is out. Right. Like, he had just done Scrooge, which we also talked about. He had yes. just done Batman. He's about to go on and do Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is like his kind of breaking out point as a, as a film composer. Yeah. And he had wanted to start taking Oingo Boingo in a more pop-oriented direction and sort of stop being the kind of art lads that they had been uh, and you hear that all over uh, Dark at the End of the Tunnel which also contains one of my absolute favorite Oingo Boingo songs, The Long Breakdown but again, that's a very sort of ballady song Right. so they're, they're definitely moving away from the, the Oingo Boingo sound if you will mm-hmm. and he had said that if he had known they were only going to use four bars of the song 
he would have pulled it. I don't. I don't blame him really. Yeah. Because like this, it it happens in such like an inse- inconsequential scene. Mm-hmm. Like Ray and Egon are at the lab, and they get the call that something bad happened at Dana's apartment, and they leave. And this song is just playing on the radio in the background. Yeah, it's source music, exactly. and but we never even get to hear any lyrics. No, it's just the opening four bars, and they wanted that so that they could say they had Oingo Boingo on their soundtrack because it had been a hit for other people yeah it's it's kind of the the crasser side of of soundtrack building yeah and this soundtrack in a lot of ways uh we haven't even gotten to the the story behind how this soundtrack came together uh which we'll get to very shortly yeah so at this point you know the the guys are on the case they're investigating dana's apartment they find out they go back to the tunnel underneath the street where they find the river of slime they go for a dip in it (laughs) <laughs> and meanwhile, meanwhile, Dana and Binkman are out on a very fancy date at a very fancy restaurant. Mm-hmm. And when they come up out of the slime, the guys go straight to the restaurant and they start telling Peter about all this stuff. And of course, they all get arrested because this is crazy person talk. Yes. But before they even go to the restaurant, they're arguing and it's they're They've absorbed all that negativity. Right. From the river of slime. And Egon realizes what's what hap- is happening here because Ray and Winston are about to kill each other. Yes. And so he he orders them to strip <laughs> right in the middle of the street. Yep. And Winston wears a red union suit, which is kind of a nice detail. And I, I just I like that they're all wearing long johns because this is a kid's movie, everybody. Well, and it's also December in New York. That's true. Yeah. Okay. And it is very very cold i'll bet i don't i don't want to know what happens to the slime when it freezes yeah really i don't we could probably ask egon yeah he probably oh he probably knows knows too well but so the guys get arrested and as they're getting taken downtown we get the next song on our soundtrack the big song the one that we've kind of been building towards and talked about the whole time it's bobby brown's on our own yes and they are actually taken down past Bobby Brown, who plays the mayor's doorman in a cameo. Let's go to a clip. Despite the opening keyboard riff sounding like the Ninja Turtles arcade game. Kind of. I'm going to go on record as saying this is actually my preferred Ghostbusters theme. I'm into this one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Because Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters is iconic. It's an iconic riff. You instantly know it. Everybody in the whole world knows it. But it's not a song you can listen to casually. Because it's a, a novelty song. You don't listen to the Monster Mash casually. I mean, you don't, maybe. <laughs> but I feel like this one stands on its own as a song outside of the Ghostbusters rap at the bridge. Right. You could remove that that rap and it would still be a perfectly good song. And not just a perfectly good song. It is a banger it really is it is so so hot um 
it's like a, a perfect example of that like emerging new Jack Swing sound. Yes. It really is. And the the soundtrack really does lean very, very heavily on that, which in a lot of ways was the vibe of New York City at the time. Uh, now, we talked briefly about New Jack Swing when we talked about The Mask and that it is a fusion of hip hop with funk, disco, jazz and R&B elements. Uh, mostly underscored with drum machine beats so that you could get that real swing rhythm. Right. Um, now, Teddy Riley put it probably the best way I've heard. Singers were soft, rappers were street, and New Jack Swing sort of fused the two of them into something really sexy. You had this great groove with the funk and jazz influences. But it had a little bit of an edge. And, and then you've got Bobby Brown coming in, and he can kind of blend both of those together. He's got the verse down. He's got a very smooth verse down. And then he can rap as well. And he just kind of puts the two together, and bam, you've got a hit. And there it is. And we see how much of an influence this song had and this style, and really this whole soundtrack, because this is not the only track like this. Uh, it had, because by December... Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, which is considered one of the primary texts of New Jack Swing, was the number one album. Yeah. So it really, this soundtrack, in a lot of ways, ushered that into the mainstream. That's on Bobby Brown's shoulders. And it's also worth pointing out that this song was written and produced, you know, in large part by uh, Babyface Edmonds. Yes. who, Who had a huge hand in bringing that sound to you know, the mainstream. Yes. And then also produced uh, like Madonna's bedtime stories mm-hmm. yeah. and was a, just a monster producer heading into the nineties. Now i um, small connection, but uh, one nonetheless, we talk about um, how we talked about new Jack swing in the mask. Randy Edelman wrote these scores for both the mask and Ghostbusters too. Oh wow! Our friend Randy Edelman, who his wife uh, wrote, uh, put, put a little love in your heart, which ah. appeared in Scrooged. Yeah, so you Bill Murray all around everybody. Mm-hmm. There we go. It's wild to think that like Ghostbusters two and The Mask are connected with this you know genre of music because they they seem so far apart, but it really was just five years. Yeah, and by that point, New Jack Swing was sort of on the way out. Uh, it really ran, its peak was, a, started kind of in 1986, really peaked in 1989, uh, and through the early 90s, and then was on its way out by the time the mask hit. So, I mean, we're a little out of our depth when we talk about this stuff, but if you wanted to chart the history of New Jack Swing in film soundtracks, it basically starts at Ghostbusters 2 and ends at The Mask, two of the whitest movies ever made. Yes, indeed. That's kind of unfortunate, but there it is. It is. is. I, but I'm, you know, there are, are tons of other you know movies out there that we we haven't yet touched. Maybe maybe will someday. That definitely kind of exist in that New Jack Swing ecosystem. Yeah, but we're it's a maybe, really wonderful genre. But we're maybe not the people to bring to break that down for you. And you know, mm-hmm. we should probably have like a, a guest on at some point to talk about that. Yeah. So if you'd like to come talk about New Jack Swing, please enlighten us yes uh, we'd love to know more yeah hit us up at at ost party on twitter but yeah this is such a good song and i think the movie knows it because it uses it three times it does and it uses the it at a time 
where it could use uh, We're Back, which is the other Bobby Brown song on the soundtrack. Right. Um, but which, it doesn't. Yeah. No. Um, and that one, in a way, I feel it's not as it's not as kicking, but it has a really good way of sampling uh, Entrance of the Gladiators. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, and I feel like that would have been a great thing to use with Vigo. It's Vigo. He's Vigo. You were like the buzzing <laughs> of flies to him. So I feel like that was a real missed opportunity for them. But alas. We're back. We'll talk about that one later. But it's almost got too much energy for this film. <laughs> but um, on our own, uh, it does have, it, it spells out the plot of Ghostbusters 2 uh, in, in a rap that really Will Smith probably learned from. Just like, ha. I'm going to oh, make yeah. a career out of doing that. I love that Bobby Brown apparently just watched the first five minutes of the movie and then just like wrote a song because he specifically references the opening of the film where Ray and Winston go to a kid's birthday party and then outside like oozes, oozes slamming up onto the street. Well, he doesn't want to spoil it. Well, no, but. What if you hear this song before you see the movie? You're trying yeah, to set the, the scenes. Like, He's not Blue Oyster Cult. Okay. Well, okay. So, uh. <laughs> What, okay, I'm, I'm a kid in 1989 and I hear this song so I'm trying to like get myself psyched for Ghostbusters 2 here are the things that I know they go to a birthday party there's slime on the street there's some guy named Vigo and apparently to fight the Ghostbusters is illegal in the city of New York yeah those are the things that I know yeah that's all you need to know um, now one more way that Bobby Brown again so instrumental producer Peter Afterman which is a great name for a Ghostbuster film wanted Bobby Brown so badly that he offered MCA the entire soundtrack. Oh, wow. Just to get Bobby Brown and ended up with two Bobby Brown songs, new edition. That's why Oingo Boingo and Elton John are on there. Aha. See, that makes a lot more sense. Yes. Those are a lot of them are MCA artists. Uh, so they wanted they wanted that hit. And they got it. Yeah. It was it was a gamble that uh that paid off. I think they've said that they might not have had a soundtrack uh if they went back and did it again because they didn't have as much source music. So little of it appeared in the film and they felt pressured to do a soundtrack as a merchandising piece. But I'm glad they did. So they kind of just had to work the songs that they had into the film any way they could. Mm-hmm. Right. Because there's a lot that don't appear. Yeah, there are a couple of big ones that don't appear. We'll talk about them at the end of the show. But uh, like Elton John, yeah, he's only on here apparently for contractual obligations, but he's it's <laughs> not in the film. No. Oh, yeah. Last thing we'll talk about with On Our Own is the video, which is kind of a neat little video where it's like the original Ghostbusters video where you just get random celebrity cameos and Bobby Brown is singing up like his he's singing up on the sides of buildings. Like he just shows up and starts singing the song and like random celebrities will like look up and go, oh, yeah, there's Bobby Brown on the building. <laughs> and at a certain point in the video, it just kind of goes blank for like five seconds. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I guess they just like randomly uh, either forgot to shoot a scene or. They just took something out. I have no idea no. what that's about. <laughs> Joe is joking, of course. Uh, a certain former president appears in front of his stupid gold tower. And remember how we said 
that they predicted the world would end in 2016. I think Ghostbusters predicted the Trump presidency. Here's why. Okay. World ends in 2016. Trump appears in the video for On Our Own. And this appears in the scene, as we said, as they're going to the mayor's house. And the mayor says the following, which I'm pretty sure was Trump's campaign slogan. Being miserable and treating other people like dirt is every New Yorker's God-given right. Which is really the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency and his stupid idiot legions of fans in a nutshell. Uh, So in 1989, who was the mayor of New York City? The mayor of New York City in 1989 was Ed Koch. And for those of you uh, who ever watched The Critic in the early 90s, remember that Jay wrote a parody uh, or wrote a Ghostbusters 3. And in it... Though he wrote a great script, they threw it out, and they made a very stupid film where New York City was attacked by a 50-foot Ed Koch. (laughs) So Ed Koch did eventually get his place in a, I'm going to say, canonical Ghostbusters. In the Ghostbusters canon. That's beautiful. Yeah. But you know, like, (laughs) two films that every 90s kid has written in their heads, Ghostbusters 3 and Home Alone 3. They both take place in New York. I still want, as we said on our Home Alone 2 episode, I still want Greg Sestero's Home Alone 2. <laughs> Give the yeah. people what they want. That's right. <laughs> so where were we? We went on a weird tangent there for a bit. Uh, they were getting thrown in a mental hospital. Right, because they're trying to explain to the mayor how serious an issue this is. Meanwhile, you know, Vigo and Janos are setting their plan into motion. Uh, Vigo yes. wants Janos to kidnap Dana's baby so that Vigo could have a vessel to become the new ruler of the world. And he says, I don't I don't want to say greatest villains because it's just a stupid painting of a, of a guy. But Max von Stadau is, is the voice of Vigo, and he's just wonderful in this film. Every, he really is. Every line is a keeper. Yes. Uh, the notable one that I have is the seed of evil begins with the birth of the new year. Which, with the CDC's new reduced guidelines on COVID, I don't disbelieve it. On a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. What was will be, what is will be no more. Now is the season of evil. Everything out of Vigo's mouth is just poetry. (laughs) dark he has very few lines but he is majestic in all of them he really is um but yeah so then the the baby oscar is kidnapped by a flying ghost nanny which somehow is also janosh which i never understood because janosh is not dead i guess projection sure why a vigo projection of janosh and i do want to give a shout out to randy edelman here because in this piece he cribs ha from Rockabye Baby, like he weaves it in in just the most haunting and terrifying way, and it's really beautiful. And it, yeah, and it's genuinely kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and the scene where Oscar is standing out on the ledge, I have nightmares about that. Like either with like my one of my nieces or my nephews, or sometimes it's like a kitten that's on a ledge. Mm-hmm. And I'm not afraid of heights so much as I am of ledges. They terrify me. 
they absolutely cripple me. So this, like, I have to look away. Oh yeah, definitely. In this like, scene, heights aren't so much the problem. It's 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 every comedian's joke. Heights aren't really the problem. It's falling from heights that I'm scared. Of. Yeah, it's just like oh. It's just yeah. It's, it's, it's the idea your, of that open space. Mm. Yeah, it's your like your fight or flight instinct kicking into overdrive, and you're like, I don't want to be here. Yeah, yeah, and because you know, if you just move, if you breathe wrong, you will plummet to the earth exactly. and you will die. So um, I yeah. don't do ledges. So at this point in the film, it is New Year's Eve because uh, Vigo's entire plan has to take place at a stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. So Dana goes to the museum to rescue baby Oscar. Meanwhile, the slime starts to do its thing, and it, it encases the museum in like a giant pink blob of slime. Monsters and ghosts go all over the city, running amok. And speaking of slime, Glenn Fry stops by oh. with Flip City. <laughs> Let's go to a clip. Now, call me crazy. There are two Oingo Boingo songs on the soundtrack, and this is the better one. How did <laughs> that not, happen? I'm not going to agree with that because this is Glenn Fry and I hate it. But with those sort of hypercolor synths and those neon keys, it has like big F Zero energy. Kind of does, yeah. It's a little too synthy. Or Oingo Boingo. I see what you're saying, but I don't totally agree. It's it's um, more it's more the high energy of it. Like it's very up tempo yeah. and upbeat, and like it's more it's got more of the Oingo Boingo vibe than the Oingo Boingo song does. Yes, that I would agree with. It's, um, it's, it's more stereotypical, I guess I'll say. Yes. Now, yeah. if you sit and listen to this lyrically, it's really stupid and corny. But from a purely soundscape feel, it's pretty slick. It's sort of like a less twitchy time bomb town. Yeah, kind of. Like you can, it's still got that feel. Um, but thinking back to Post Eagles projects, if we go back to our episode on heavy metal, I feel like this one fits in better with the heavy metal vibe than Taking a Ride Ooh, Heavy Metal. Yeah, definitely. Like picture the opening sequence mm-hmm. set to this. I could, I could see that for sure. Yeah. Um. Or something like City Limits, like some really cheesy, like, 80s apocalyptic film. This mm-hmm. has that apocalypse feel to it. it or, also, like, a very stylized 80s apocalypse. Yeah, or, like, the up-tempo, like, kind of comedy vibe. It, this would fit right in, you know, on uh, Beverly Hills Cop, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, they they already had him there with the, the heat is on. Exactly. So so. Doubled up. Yeah. Um, the heat is on actually probably would have been a better song for this one. Uh, yeah, especially like it's cold out. It's it's New Year's Eve, but then Vigo's wow. turning up the heat. Yeah, yeah. Um, or when he lights their studio on fire and Winston has to save them. <laughs> oh, that's see, that's just a, a good uh, fun beat for a dark moment <laughs> in a comedy yeah. for kids. I love that. Um, but yeah, this this one I think works in the scene. I think sitting and listening to it on the soundtrack is a little bit of a drag. Yeah, it's not great. Like, uh, I, this is a soundtrack that I listened to while I was at the grocery store. So I think that that may be why I like 
the Oingo Boingo song so much because I'm in just the, the most like mundane, chill environment possible. And then here's Danny Elfman. But then, yeah. and then as I'm leaving, I hear Glenn Fry doing this song, and I'm like, did Oingo Boingo do two songs? Am I going crazy? <laughs> so maybe it's no, just like more, maybe the environment that I'm in when I'm listening to this is is throwing me off. Yes. Now, in this montage, it's sort of a reverse of the montage we had earlier with Ghostbusters. Right. Um, and this, I feel like We're Back would have been a good a good sort of flip there. Um, because where they were trapping all the ghosts during that montage, all the ghosts are escaping. Uh, down at Pier 34, the Titanic rolls up, um, and Cheech Marin is... One of the harbor masters, and he's got he's got just the perfect singer for it, you know. Well, better late than never. Yeah, um, you get the giant woman. Yeah, he did the giant demon that burst through the Washington Square Arch. Mm-hmm. I love that guy. And they, uh, they said in some of the production notes that when they shot that, people found out that they were shooting Ghostbusters down oh, there. No. And they went down and they got them to be extras. And sure enough, they like ran and screamed. They, they, you know, they did the work. Yeah. People but, love being in monster movies, you know? Yeah. They just, they showed up and were extras. Um, I don't know how that works with SAG, but. Hey, um, however, however you can get it, I guess. Yeah. Um, but. You know, woman's owl coat, or like they look like owls. I don't think they're actually owls, but they come alive and look like horrible monsters <laughs> and attack her and run away. I oh. guess that was a gag that they were going to use in the first movie, and it got cut. Yeah, I think they were they meant to do that, and they just either couldn't make it work or it just didn't fit. But they brought yeah. it back, and it's it, it works here. It's great. Yeah, like, we also see uh, Ben Stein as one of the mayor's aides. Not just Ben Stein, but also Philip Baker Hall. Place oh, the, that's the right. Poli- yeah. The police commissioner. <laughs> we also get our second play of On Our Own as Tully breaks them out of the mental hospital. Now they're back out and they're ready to fight Vigo. Meanwhile, Janusz is trying to convince Dana to marry him in a weirdly sweet way. Like, we could get married and raise this and raise Vigo. He tries to tempt her with, you know, all the perks that being the mother of a living God affords her, like free parking and a, a nice apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and having tried to rent an apartment in New York, I'd be like, okay, let's, I'm, I'm going to hear you out. Because, for instance, you can rent an apartment above the former Ray's Occult Bookshop. Ooh. Do you want to guess how much it is a month? $1,000. No, just no, just guess. $2,000. Give me a real guess. Okay, $3,000 a month. $3,800. <sighs> Ooh. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. I bet it doesn't but even come you, with free parking. No. Uh, and, you know, and that's in, at that point, now that is a very nice a- area. But at the at the time, that was a fucking garbage pit of an area where you went to buy drugs. Oh, yeah. Um, it was also the location for uh, Billy Joel's A Matter of Trust video in 1986. Oh, wow. Yes. All right. Um, now, it's New Year's. And as they're going through the streets, I don't know. I assume Times Square Rockin' New Year, Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year was called off on account of slime. But I don't Probably. know that for certain. I mean, we're, we're, we're speaking about this at a time when, like, they're only barely calling off the New Year's Eve celebrations due to COVID. So 
is slime really going to cause that much of a problem for people? <laughs> I don't think But there so. aren't a lot of people on the streets. As Not- they're driving through, you'll notice that the streets aren't that full. No. So either everyone is downtown at Dick Clark's Rockin' New Year, or everyone has been forced back into their homes. And I'm sure that there's some people out there like, the government can't tell me not to go talk to ghosts, not to go French kiss a ghost. There ain't no ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. Ghosts are a hoax. (laughs) I don't believe in ghosts. I believe in Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure there's some of those guys running around. (sighs) But yeah, so... (laughs) <laughs> they try to break through the, the slime at the museum with their proton packs. Doesn't work because guess what? The slime's not a ghost. Stupid. Yeah, it's slime. It's slime. And so they and... decide they decide that the that things have gotten so bad in New York City that everybody hates each other too much for them to save the day. And that they need a, a, a pure symbol of goodness to combat the evil of the slime. And my thought Grace here is- Grace Papaya? Sure, why not? A giant hot dog. Let's do it. <laughs> no. But it's my not th- that isn't. My thought here is boy, wouldn't that be great if that's what the movie was about? If the movie was about <laughs> how people are are just mad at each other all the time, like that would be a perfect ending to this film. But instead, no, this is a movie about like the the horrors of parenthood and how being an adult is fucking terrifying. So instead, uh, you know, just to throw back to the last episode we did, it's not every day you see the dumbest thing in the world. (laughs) Because then the dumbest thing in the world happened. Wow. That got bitter. The guys decide to use the mood slime to bring the Statue of Liberty to life. And it is genuinely the stupidest thing in the world. It's pretty dumb, especially, again, when Grace Papaya is right there. It's like 10 blocks up. And that's something every New Yorker loves. I don't care about the Statue of Liberty, but Gray's papaya, I would fight to the death for Gray's. Every time I'm in New York, I go to Gray's because I'm scared that one day I will go back to New York and Gray's won't be there. <laughs> Fair enough. Try that from my cold, dead hands. See, nowadays, if they made this movie now, um, their symbol for New York would probably be a 50-foot Billy Joel. Oh, yeah. Playing Piano Man at Madison Square Garden, and it would depress Vigo so much that he would slink off into the darkness. Depressed? No, embarrassed more like. (laughs) These New Yorkers are just too much, man. I can't deal with this. I'm not done making fun of Billy Joel in this podcast. I still got one more joke left, and you are not getting away from it. Oh, I'm ready. Been too long. We had to do Ruthless People at some point so I can really let loose. And Bill Pullman's in it. Oh, great. So they take the slime that's been positively charged and they shoot it all up and down the inside of the Statue of Liberty. Do you think she's naked under there? I mean, she's French. (laughs) So maybe. And then, you know, because we can't just put Jackie Wilson's higher and higher on the soundtrack. We have to have a cover. So Libby, take us under the covers. Yes, this is uh, Howard Huntsbury, who played Jackie Wilson in La Bamba, covering Your Love is Lifting Me Higher and Higher. Let's go to a clip. This is 
a serviceable cover. It's an 80s-ified version. It's definitely synthetic. But it's not glaringly offensive. No, like the arrangement is all over the place, but I don't mind yeah. it. And vocally, he sounds fine. He's not as good as Jackie Wilson. But if you were sort of listening to this from a distance, you might, your brain might fill in that it's Jackie Wilson. Right. And I think maybe they realized that the original was not going to fit in a scene where the Statue of Liberty walks down the street. Yeah, they definitely like polished it up for the 80s, you know, revamped it. But I I don't mind this at all. I actually kind of like this version. Yeah. And soul covers were starting to have a big comeback in the 80s. Uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later, but we were starting to rediscover 60s and 70s soul music and Motown records, which is not a bad thing. No, and I mean, you know, on our last yeah, last year's Christmas episode, we talked about how Andy Lennox and Al Green sang um, Put a Little Love in Your Heart. Yeah, so, so this is, it, this is I guess, sort of time appropriate. Absolutely. This was something that was happening in the scene, uh, especially, again, on soundtracks where... You could have somebody like Howard Huntsbury, uh, who you could get for cheap, mm -hmm. yeah, cover this song. I mean, this is really kind of the only thing he's known for that, and playing Jackie Wilson in La Pampa. Right, and it's it's definitely part and parcel with that sort of mid eighty, mid to late eighties, like reappraisal of fifties uh, and sixties artists. Yep, so, exactly. Yeah, makes perfect oh. sense. Yes, so they, everybody cheers again. For New York City, that line is about four people deep lining the street. That's nothing. <laughs> Again, that they're more jazzed about crowd. Dick Clark's rocking New Year's Eve. <laughs> I guess. I guess they're all down in Times Square wearing diapers and trying not to pee. Yeah. Throwing up on each other. They're all fucking miserable. Yes. Um, I want to note that uh, Lady Liberty says all cops are bastards. <laughs> yeah, as she, as she squishes a cop car, but good. Yes. Oh, boy. So, we also see that Tully wants to be a Ghostbuster. He suits up um, and he takes the bus because he's Tully. Slimer is driving the bus. But he gets on because duty calls. And I always thought it was cute that, that in my head, Slimer wanted to help, you know? Yeah, I guess. I mean, again, as a kid who loved the Ghostbusters cartoon, Slimer was like the main character of it. So, Jesus yeah, Christ. it was neat that they included Slimer doing literally anything. Oh, yay. <laughs> Hooray. Libby does not care about this at all. Don't care. <laughs> Slimer does not impress me. I do like that he's a puppet, initially. It's a, yeah, it's a genuine puppet. Yeah, which I, I'm always impressed by puppets. You know, that's, that's one thing that the 2016 film doesn't have in its corner is, that, you know, they have Slimer, but it's a CGI Slimer and he looks like shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and pentatonics. And pentatonics. There they are again. But yeah, the, the Statue of Liberty makes it to the museum, and everybody is so jazzed about the Statue of Liberty being there, and they're all singing higher and higher. <laughs> all and 125 of them. Both people are singing higher and higher. <laughs> and the, the, the slime recedes just enough. The Statue of Liberty takes her torch and just smashes the window. Yes. So meanwhile, uh, Vigo is trying to meld with the baby. In a truly horrifying meld. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that will live with me until the end of days. It is disturbing, and like the actor playing Vigo, Wilhelm von Homburg, is like a truly scary looking individual. Yes, he was a boxer, and his face is so just fucked up from mm-hmm. a life of violence that they didn't need to do prosthetics. They're just like, well, that guy's scary looking. Yeah, and I, he I, also walked out of the premiere when he found out that they didn't use his voice. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a, a huge he bummer for him. Not happy. No. And he died basically homeless. That's a shame. Yeah. Well, his dad might have been a Nazi, and he supposedly raped his stepmother. So he's sort of. Yeah, sometimes you die the you die the death you've earned in life. Uh, he wasn't a particularly good person. Maybe not. Okay, so maybe <laughs> maybe we're better off for having Max von Sydow do his voice. Exactly. But but at any rate, yeah. For a comedy, this is genuinely disturbing. <laughs> it is. It's very upsetting for a movie where three minutes earlier a slime monster was driving a bus. That was the eighties though. Yeah. But you know, so they weird. saved the day. What really neutralizes Vigo and his evil powers, because they shoot Janusz with the slime. Right. But it's all the people outside singing Auld Lang Syne. Right. They're all, everyone is together, all 75 of them. Because it's 75 people who live in the tri state area. Uh, And we're all, really, we're all just people, right? Like, everyone just wants love or something. Put a little love in your heart. Yeah, for a a hot minute, midnight on New Year's Eve, everybody is singing and and in in some kind of embrace, and it's warm and fuzzy. And. I guess what I'm realizing now is that the reason that Vigo, you know, covered the museum in slime was so he didn't have to hear people singing. Yeah. Nobody likes that part when they like pan out over the crowd on the corpse of Dick Clark's rock and new year. Yeah. really. And everyone is singing. You're like, please stop. Yeah. Like we get it. Just go home. Yeah. So (laughs) you are all filled with pee. Please just leave. And. The original Ghostbusters theme takes us out of the film. So they exit the museum and the day is saved. Yes, and once again, Rick Moranis walks past the severed head of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> wait. This is the second time he does this. Hang on, wait. Is that how Streets of Fire ended? Uh, no. I wish it did. That would have ruled. No. It's the end of Spaceballs. Oh, right, right. Wow. Wow, I got my movies kind of confused for a second. <laughs> But yeah, and then it as the credits start to roll, we get this one last scene where the mayor gives the Ghostbusters the key to the city. And I guess it's like supposed to be a rededication for putting the Statue of Liberty back. That was I've, nice of them. I've always wondered how that was supposed to work, but they never show it because I think they realize that's too stupid. <laughs> Nobody cares. I assume they just walked her back. Yeah, but then, you know, I kind of wanted to see that. <laughs> I want to see this actually really climb back up. It's like, all right, I'm just going to assume the pose. Okay, I'm no longer dancing and fun. Yeah, because they would have had to clean all the slime out. <laughs> New York Public Works is not going to like that. But we also, after we hear a few bars of the original Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters theme, we segue into On Our Own for the third time. Because why, why play it twice when you can play it a third time over the end credits? Yes. This is also where we get two other songs. It, it, we do get uh, Bobby Brown's We're Back, but before that, we get uh, Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew, Spirit. Let's go to a clip. Yeah. 
these artists showed up for the Ghostbusters soundtrack and wrote songs about the Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. They didn't merely just like throw them a song. These guys all showed up and sang about the Ghostbusters. (laughs) And this one addresses the dark evil slime. Yeah. And calls for social justice. Uses the movie's core message. To call for a better world. And, I mean, who doesn't love Dougie Fresh? I mean, the man's the human beatbox. Yeah, of course. He's incredible. Here's a, Yeah, like, I, I just love that, that last little bit. You have to wait till the end of the song to get to it, but it's great. Here's a seed, so let's plant a foundation of newborn leaders, law book readers, career coordinators, and poverty feeders. Yeah. That's great. That's... So, it's a great way, and especially as we think about, as we head into this next year, um, let's... You know, what does Bill Murray say at the end of Scrooge? Like, let's become, you know, the people that we wish we were. Yeah, all year round. Yeah. Why not? Let's do that. It's not, it's never too late. Yeah. And let uh, spirit guide you. And a couple of these songs really do that. They really talk about uh, the social justice message that is wrapped up in Ghostbusters 2. Especially when you look at it as a symbol of you know, of urban blight and of how New York had just become this center of kind of poverty and crime. That's like if we could take care of our cities and take care of our people and create a better network, then there isn't going to be an evil river of pink slime running underneath the city. Exactly. Something to think about. It's yeah, it's food for thought. <laughs> Everybody. Now, there's a couple songs we haven't talked about. Oh, yeah. The first, as it appears on the soundtrack, is uh, the song Promised Land by James J.T. Taylor of Cool and the Gang. Yeah. Let's go to a clip. As we stand looking at the rise and fall is a little more of that traditional R&B on mm-hmm. and yeah. it's pretty bitter. It's sort of the opposite of spirit. He talks about, you know, the common man has heard all the promised land. Mhm. You know, it's all about the lies we've all been told. It's a pretty fitting song for the the first half of the album because like it's setting the mood, the tone, how how dark and and kind of depressing everything is at the start. Yeah. And I feel like, though, because it's sandwiched in between, you know, two Bobby Brown tracks and a new edition, which is Bobby Brown's band. Right. I I feel like it gets lost. A little bit. In the right place, it could really shine. I don't know if that place is here because it ends up being a little bit of filler. Yeah. It's not a bad song by any means. It just doesn't quite gel with the rest of the mood of the soundtrack. Yeah. Because it's so upbeat and this is a little dated i think Mm -hmm. for sure Mm -hmm. 
Uh, next up is actually the song that precedes Promised Land on the soundtrack. This is New Edition uh, with Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Let's go to it. This woman. said they're leaning very very heavily into that that new jack swing um this one doesn't hit as hard as on our own it doesn't quite have that same hook it's still good but again it's it's a little bit of a little bit of filler yeah it's kind of on our own light if i'm being honest. yes especially when you compare it to uh we're back Mm -hmm. which just again kicks so much ass I think it really is just it kind of illustrates just how much of a performer Bobby Brown is versus mm-hmm. New Edition as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the rest of the band minus Bobby Brown, which oh, that's a drag. He probably yeah. he would have elevated it. He definitely would have, and you know I think putting those two side by side just makes the difference that much more glaring. Mm-hmm. So and it's also just about like a hot babe. Oh yeah, yeah. So we can assume it's about Annie Potts. Of course. Who is just cute as a button in this film. Or Sigourney Weaver. Pick mm-hmm. poison. I, I, I can't. How, how do I choose? <laughs> Honestly, how do I choose? <laughs> I want to talk about the real outlier on this soundtrack. Sure. This one baffles me. And that is Love is a Cannibal by Elton John. Let's go to a clip. I feel like they said we need some white people on this soundtrack or we're going to scare away all the racist moms in the suburbs. Yeah, was this just like a song for mom and dad or something? I think it must have been. This is from his album Sleeping with the Past, which was, to his credit, inspired by the R&B sounds of the 60s and 70s. But he got the idea for doing this album because Billy Joel did it with an innocent man. (laughs) Of course he did. Yeah, fucking course. Now, what I think is so interesting about this song, because this song is good. I don't think it fits. I don't (laughs) love it here. But I think it's a pretty great Elton John song. It's definitely like an outlier from all the Elton John, like, 80s songs that I know. It's way more upbeat than I'm used to. And I wouldn't have necessarily guessed this was a soul tribute um you could hear it when you really listen but elton john doesn't carry it so nakedly the way like billy joel does because elton john is a better songwriter of course um the thing is this was an outtake from sleeping with the past this wasn't really like this is a b-side it was the b-side to sacrifice which is a really lovely song um, mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite Elton John songs. That's a little bit more of a ballad. Because when you're Elton John, 
your garbage still has the potential to bang hard. <laughs> but I just... I understand that he was on the MCA label. But when you look at all of the artists on the MCA label, I understand Oingo Boingo because they did have a lot of songs that were popular in movies that teen boys watched. It, that makes business sense. I'm just not sure about Elton John. I just don't know where that idea came from. I don't know. And the thing that immediately <laughs> jumps out to me is remember the soundtrack to Lost Boys had that really kind of inexplicable Elton John cover by Roger Daltrey. Oh, that's right. Like, I don't know why they did. I mean, I know why they did it because it's, you know, don't let the sun go down on me is a fun joke to put in a vampire movie. But otherwise, like, why even include that? Yeah. I mean, Elton John was a huge deal through the 80s, but I just don't understand why a movie aimed at like 11 year old boys that is full of emerging sounds and black artists Mm-hmm. And so much talent, and you think, let's get Elton John in there. And like as- at that point, they might as well have put Huey Lewis in. <laughs> yeah, really. And I mean, if we're gonna go with the logic that this was a song for mom and dad, like if that's how you're gonna sell the movie, then why wasn't this a, like one of the singles? They just threw it on a- here and forgot yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, it's buried somewhere at the bottom of the A, top of the B. Yeah. So has no reason to be here. Just absolutely baffling. Like many of the choices, I think, in, in Ghostbusters 2. Just sort of like, hmm, you didn't think that one entirely through. Yeah, and Kinda it's... Played you know, that one over. So much of Ghostbusters 2, and really, you know, the Ghostbusters franchise as a whole, is decisions made because of money. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah like, uh, unless you're Bobby Brown, you're not coming out of this soundtrack, you know, feeling too good. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Danny Elfman was disappointed with how they used his song. Uh, They just plucked an Elton John cast off at at random, seemingly. I like Run DMC's cover. Run DMC's cover is good, but they're they're also just, they're part of sort of the the mood they're trying to set for the film, you know? Yeah. But that works. Bobby Brown and Run DMC, they're great. They're fine. The rest of the soundtrack, while I like most of it, a lot of it just raises more questions. Yeah. It's it feels like it's not part of the movie. No, no, it really doesn't. But so. it must have like Bobby Brown really carried the weight of this album on his shoulders. He did. He did. So, uh, but I think. Do you have any final thoughts then on Ghostbusters Two? I mean, it's it's a movie that I'm not particularly fond of because I think it does a lot of stupid things. But again, I was a kid in the early. 90s and late 80s I enjoyed the cartoon so much I think I just my nature is to like want to watch Ghostbusters stuff yeah so I don't hate it it's just I understand that they made bad choices eh, I think know? it's comforting it's kind of cute the soundtrack though no like the movie and the soundtrack, soundtrack together bangs. yeah it's it's a great package it's it's a great yeah. package it's just like when in the moment you're watching it going really I'm doing this again yeah I um I kind of want to find this one on vinyl. And actually, in 2014, both versions of Ghostbusters, so Run DMC and Ray Parker Jr., were released on white, marshmallow-scented vinyl. Oh, wow. And meanwhile, Randy Edelman's score was released this year. It had never been available until 2021. 
That's incredible. Yeah. But this this is one if I if I found that uh Bobby Brown forty five, I would absolutely get it. Um it, you it, can find it appears a, I found it on eBay, you can buy it for three dollars. Yeah. Um you can also uh on Discogs they've got the twelve inch that was a promo, it's never sort of formally released as a single, uh, for flesh and blood. Ooh. Wow. So you can find the the twelve inch mix of that. So Final corner of uh, OST party. We're basically the podcast of Oingo Boingo soundtrack cuts now at this point. Yes. <laughs> so we're, we're going to hunt down those those er- those last errant few, but uh... we'll track them down and hunt them. Yes. Well, that about wraps it up for Ghostbusters two. So Libby, what are we doing next time on the show? We're going to start the year off with some uh, sexy, sexy Matthew Modine, a little Madonna. It's a journey and Berlin because we are going to talk about the soundtrack to Vision Quest. Uh, now that the Shattered Shield is over, I don't have a podcast to be horny on. So congratulations. I'm channeling it all here. Oh, my God. Now, correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong. Is this is this or is this not the movie where Ron Perlman plays a caveman? No, that's Quest for Fire. Oh, that's right. This is about a wrestler. And I don't know anything other than that. Okay, well... I know Matthew Modine is shirtless and very sweaty. That's all we need here on this podcast. (laughs) Matthew Modine, shirtless and sweaty. Yeah. All right, well, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Codemore. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Joe, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Cordial Wombat, or you can find me on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps, where we talk about Christmas movies all year long. We just released a huge two-part episode on Home Alone as our big Christmas Day episode. Uh, So go check that out. And if you have any questions or comments, anything you want to send us, even right down to um, requests for future episodes, send those to us at OST Party on Twitter or email us at OSTPartyPod at gmail.com. All right. All well, right. happy new year, everyone. Happy new year. For the OST party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. We'll be back. <laughs> back to fight the evil.